0: okay boom welcome everybody to another episode of real drug talk my name is jack nagel and on this show we talk about all things alcohol and drugs addiction um and addiction recovery on today's show um again another one that pulled at my heartstrings um and that was really powerful for me uh and just a really relatable story um Uh, which I'll tell you about in a second. So uh, today's show is brought to you by Connection-Based Living. Connection-Based Living is our outpatient program that we run where we teach people how to transform out of addictive patterns without having to go to rehab. So if that sounds of interest to you, um, you can have a look down in the show notes below check it all out, um, click around and book in a call or reach out to us in some way and we'll see how we can help. So that's www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. Um, yeah, so today's show was uh, again very, very emotional, pulled at the heartstrings um, and yeah, I, I just found it a, a really touching story. So we actually crossed the border in today's show kind of Um <laughs> Uh, We had uh, a couple that originally are from the US um, and now they are trying to get citizenship in Australia because their only living child um, has, yeah, married an Australian person. um, So they spend a lot of their time here now. Um, So we had on the show Jude and John Tran, um, or Trang, sorry. um, And they... um, both have written a book called opioid nation um you know about the um opioid um, uh, crisis going on in america but as it relates to their son and the death of their son um which is just a shattering and, and horrible story and, and they come on the show today and, and talk about that um yeah look again uh, warning advice for this show because it's like very intense very emotional um or it was for me anyway definitely felt like that um but yeah they're, these guys are kind of amazing and and as they say at the end they want to be part of the solution not part of the problem and and make you know the the terrible events that happened with their son jl um john life um mean something so yeah it was a really interesting conversation just to hear how they actually got through that as a family and processed it all and um you know, what they're doing now to try to try and help and, and use their story for good. So um, have a listen. It's a great show just to kind of remind everyone as tough as things are at the moment. Um, if you're breathing, then it's a good day. Um, that's what I took out of it. You know, even having been through intense experiences myself, you know, you just, you kind of get into the groove of things and, and you forget about, Um, where you've come from and and what's happened. So, yeah, it was an awesome show just to kind of slap me upside the head and and readjust my perspective on how good things actually are, um, uh, as tough as they may be at the moment um, for a lot of people. So, yeah. Yeah. Hope you enjoy the show. Um, If you need any support after, please just reach out again. It's a very tough and um, challenging conversation. Brought up a little bit of emotion for me when I put the podcast out. I I think I teared up a couple of times um, because yeah, it it just uh, tugged at the heartstrings. So nevertheless, um, check out their book, Opioid Nation. They talk about where you can get it at the end. We'll also put that in the show notes. um, And everybody have a great sunday or whenever you're listening to this have a great day cheers bye three two one okay boom welcome everybody to another episode of real drug talk now today um uh lately we've actually had some intense shows and i think that this will be another one um and i'm um, I'm excited to kind of have this conversation because you know, as you guys listening know, right from the start, one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast was just have everybody that is affected by alcohol and drugs um, come on and share their stories, experiences, professional opinions, so that we can get the whole gamut um, of expertise and, and experiences in the conversation um and And just kind of sum it up all together and and find the interesting points where they intersect and and find the way forward so today we actually have um a family story, which is um fantastic and I was explaining to um, John and Jude, who I introduced in a second on the phone um yesterday when we were chatting is that we want to have more family members come on and and talk about their stories because it's it 's a space that is just very or a voice if you like that's very underrepresented um I think and I don't know if you guys agree in the um alcohol and drug space and uh but it's probably families are probably the ones that have to deal with drugs and alcohol and addiction the most, you know, because they're often with their loved one for 24 hours a day. And if they're involved in some sort of support service or whatever, they might come for an hour. Um, but other than that, they've got them for the rest of the time. So we also they are in australia but you'll hear the twang in in the accent um we we've got they're from the us of a which is cool um and i love the us i've i've traveled there a little bit and it's awesome so i'm excited to talk a little bit about that but uh so we've got jude and john trang on how are you guys
1: we're good thanks
2: for having us
0: no worries now this um you know, these guys do have a personal story as well, but they're also doing like amazing advocacy work as well um, off the back of their story. Um, and they have a really uh, amazing book, which is going to be now on my uh, reading list um, called Opiate Nation, um, addiction, recovery, loss, and grief. So, um, and then, you know, they do off the back of that, a lot of, you um, I guess you call it advocacy and, and and things like that around their story. And I'm interested to chat to you guys a little bit about kind of what you, you guys have seen in the U S and how that compares to Australia and, and all that sort of stuff as well. But um, I'll shut up. H- how are you guys going? Uh, how's, how's Australia?
3: <laughs> we love Australia. We, um, I mean, our daughter married an Aussie and had the audacity to move here. At, she met him in Tucson, Arizona, where we're from. And then, yeah, they have our beautiful granddaughters here. So we've been coming back and forth for a decade or more and, uh, are waiting patiently or not in line for our parent reunion visa. So our hope is to move here since she's our only surviving child.
0: Thus, thus, and you guys into the basketball, you follow the sons.
2: Actually, I love U of a wildcats. Uh, the university Mm. there in Tucson is where I went for my pharmacy degree and my PhD. So, uh, that's that's the team i follow whenever i watch it so i'm surprised that basketball is so big here in australia
0: yeah it's gotten big in the last few years i I don't know if you guys know but i actually used to play um basketball sort of reasonably competitive when i was younger here in australia and we went over to the states for a little bit um that's kind of part of my story but yeah i know the the map of america off all the nba teams No,
2: that works you know it, that and then football and the college football in the south is like a religious experience so anyway yeah that's america
0: love it so so okay so you guys just mentioned there that that you know your connection to australia is your daughter and and you said that you know that's your your only living child um so that's probably a good segue segue into um a bit of your story do, do you guys just kind of like you got the whole book there, I know, and and a whole like years and years of experience with it. But do you guys want to give us like the, the sort of three to five minute snapshot overview of, of your story, your experience with drugs and alcohol and how it impacted your family?
2: Absolutely.
3: Well, um, I would say we've got some notes that we might read from to kind of keep us on task for this because you know you can just meander and wander through this but um 100 yes looking down folks that's what we're doing well and
2: why don't you just take a second to introduce who you are what you do
0: yeah for sure
3: i'm i'm jude and uh (laughs) my career was uh after raising kids and staying home with them and stuff for years, um, was landscape design. And then yeah. um, after what happened with our son, I took uh, our story and turned it into Opiate Nation, which came out two years ago, uh, with the help through a, a publishing company in Brisbane. As yeah. a matter of fact. And, oh wow! Um, so that was we've got a lot of connections to Australia and um, yeah, so basically you know we were the typical parents of the 80s and 90s and we yep. were intentional we were very devoted we although we were also somewhat indulgent mm. um <laughs> relationships were really important to us and the relationships with our kids had us keep them home for quite a while uh, our daughter uh, graduated from the u of a she married an aussie and moved here and yep. um, then our son Uh, His backstory is that he was introduced to hard liquor and smoking pot uh, in middle school. And um, I'm going to turn it over to John as he takes that part of the story.
2: So, yeah, I'm John. I'm a pharmacist, actually, and a pharmaceutical scientist. And one of my huge regrets in the story of our son's life and our lives together with him is how incredibly uh h- how i missed so much of this during mm. this whole process but that's that's maybe later on in the story so yeah our son's name is my name john and my dad's name life or leif like leif erickson yep yep okay so i'll we called him john life as a kid john life was what my dad how do you press so all of his friends said that's too tough i don't we're going to do. A
3: What's a John life? Is that like abundant life or life?
2: Like what does that mean? So, so quickly, uh, school age, he became JL and then actually college age, uh, he was John, but I'm going to just refer to him as JL. And here's the story. Jude's mentioned we were a, a more of a medium uh, middle income slash affluent family in the yeah. nice parts of Tucson up in the foothills. And we had the opportunity to give our kids more than they needed. Yeah. And uh in he went into public school as a uh, seventh grader. So mm-hmm. that's like what we call middle school in the yeah. States. And it was a real tough time for him. Um it was a transition from this small group of kids that he was hanging with to this huge group of kids that he didn't know anybody. Yep. And in that he met the new other new kids who didn't know anybody. And uh, one of those kids happened to be, uh, oh, his dad was the, uh, the marijuana guru for white collar, you know, drug, drug smuggling and trafficking in Tucson. Mm-hmm. So he was introduced to alcohol. He was introduced to pot he was introduced to Oxy's in middle school. Yes. And uh, his freshman year of high school, we believe, I think is the correct story, yep. he's at parties with the other seniors, you know, the older kids, and they're over in the corner smoking something, and you know, he had started smoking cigarettes, which we didn't like, but he did. And uh, sure enough, well, they're smoking they, smoke can't be bad, right? Well, it ended up being something called b t or black tar heroin,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: you don't have to inject but hey you get you get the the rush you know you get the you start chasing the dragon yeah. so uh we jude uh gracious you know the lord allowed us to just kind of see what was going on when he was 16. Mm-hmm. and i don't know if that's part of what she's going to share next or not i'll let her do that
3: well when i when i knew something was wrong i heard it's like this went from a son who we had a really close relationship to to him saying why do you keep frustrating me and not late he didn't want to have a curfew on school nights Mm -hmm. and we made an 11 o'clock curfew or something and it was like why do you keep frustrating me you want to be me to be one of those kids that pulls out a gun and shoots his parents (laughs) we went ah Something's wrong. Where did our child go? You know? <laughs> so, and we had guns in the house, but they they used to do target shooting and stuff like that, aside from paintball and all those yep. things, you know. So um, I found out through a letter from a friend that was on his desk that his friend was in a nine month recovery program. And so we we realized and I talked with the mom, and what we uncovered was that uh you know he had he really did not want to be addicted he was scared to death yeah. but it just had taken over and so we got him into a uh an outpatient recovery because he was a teenager and um instead of an inpatient we didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to put him in one our Mm -hmm. private pay health insurance did not cover mental health and there's no
2: government health care for anybody unless you're uh, ancient and retired you know retired
3: yeah Mm -hmm. or you're you know you have to go to the er in the states but so um and we we unfortunately he did he got off drugs he didn't have mat no medication um it was a rough couple of weeks and uh what we we just didn't realize how serious a problem it was the outpatient program was good Uh, Mm -hmm. we went on saturdays as with the parents and stuff and Mm -hmm. but we still in our minds i don't know why i again this was 2005 Mm. there wasn't any real public knowledge about this and and i mean we had no clue there was such a thing as bt Mm. heroin and that it was available at his school and that it was cheaper than alcohol and Mm. easier to get because the dealers just came to the parking lot so the
2: older kids sold it to the younger
3: kids right so So he was clean he started at the university a couple years later was doing fine had an accident Needed opioids. Uh. uh, Had a broken back, broken ribs, broken leg, broken head, um, and that started a relapse cycle that then continued on through the rest of his life.
2: Mm. So the the gift that J.L. and and God gave to us were was the last six months of his life. Mm -hmm. He uh, had just hit bottom a bunch of times from age twenty to twenty. 24, and um, had been in and out of recovery programs, as Jude mentioned, or, and, and finally got into a decent sober living environment. Uh, I think uh, Jude mentioned uh, one of the friends that uh, when we were talking earlier, one of his good friends had overdosed in, uh, that uh, uh, Christmas, New Year's. Mm-hmm. And so he detoxed, he got into a sober living. Uh, one of them had a little spiritual background which was good and then he got into another one that was also excellent so we had him we had the real john life back for six months and it was just a huge gift to us because sober he was just you know just like you handsome winsome he could talk your pants off dude. His friends did not want to get into an argument with him (laughs) because it didn't matter what the topic was. They knew they would lose, you know, even (laughs) if they were right,
1: they
2: they knew they would lose because that's just, he was that, he was very, very intelligent. And I think that's actually one of the issues that was not necessarily a a blessing or a gift for him because he thought he could deal with it all in his head.
0: 100%.
2: He thought he could handle it. And he didn't want to bother us with it. He, you know, the shame, stigma, all that stuff. So the squeaky clean JL was this awesome guy. The, the addicted JL was some guy you really didn't want to be around. I mean, it was, you know, it was like two different people. Mm. So after this six month period, he decided he was done with a sober living house. Uh, but was- before that, two weeks before that, he uh, had wisdom teeth. You know, he's 24 now, right? At this point. What? No, he's 20. Yeah, he's 25 turning. So he had to have his wisdom teeth taken out. Yeah. He didn't want to tell the doc that he was a heroin addict. So the doc gives him 100 Percocets before and 100 Percocets or Vicodins after. He uses them, of course, in the sober living home those last two weeks to cover the fact that, oh, hey, so they're going to be ter- drug testing me but that's okay because i'm taking opiates and it's like it's a prescription so then he starts doing bt as well again and by mm. that time in his life it was not just smoking he was uh, using it an iv
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um he crashed bad and burned and uh that was the two weeks then uh, so then he made it through those next two weeks thought he was done with the sober living home. We spent a wonderful couple of evenings with him, uh, just, you know, talking and hugging and saying goodbye, you know, just normal life. We thought everything was cool. Mm -hmm. And the first night he's in uh, his new apartment, um, which we learned later was affectionately called Garage Mahal by all of his friends, because it was this enormous workshop shed with a couple of apartments next to it. So all kinds of motorbikes and cars and cool stuff in there yeah uh, they drank heavily that all that night the kid he was rooming with didn't have any idea that jl was an, an addict JL kept two different lives going i don't know if that's common for addicts or not very very common yeah, yeah. well he had he had his clean crew and he had his his coke crew and his oh, heroin oh. crew and the rest of it
3: I'd like to say his clean crew all drank and drank quite Everybody, a
1: bit.
2: Yeah, yeah right, and right.
3: For some reason through this time, I don't know why we didn't actually ever verbalize or sink in our brain that JL was an alcoholic first. Mm, yeah, And we never viewed alcohol as, as the problem. But mm. every time he relapsed, it started with alcohol. Mm. Then it went to the opiates. And that's what happened this night. They were up drinking. He had to go to work the next morning. His friend said the last time he saw him was 4 a.m., went to his room. What people don't realize while the rest of them were drinking beer and maybe a few other things, he had those little bottles of vodka because it's an alcoholic. He had to keep token more and more down. Yep, yep. He went in to his bedroom at 4 a.m. And
2: uh, I'm sure at that point, his judgment was a little compromised. He'd been essentially clean of opiates for six months until the recent, uh, they, uh, the autopsy, they found three or four injection sites on his arm. So it, it hadn't been a lot of use. And by that time, it wasn't just black tar coming up. It was all kinds of, you know, it just gets stronger and stronger. Basically, he must have miscalculated how much he needed and uh, we are told, th- they, th- we got the knock on the door, the sheriff's said, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, Mr. Trang, your, your son has died. And of course we're in shock and disbelief and falling apart. They wouldn't even let us see him because he had, uh, he died in his bed, w- leaned over. So he was swollen and uh, uh, hematoma and the whole schmear that goes on when, when you die. Uh, from respiratory depression um and so they we we you know one of jude's chapters is saying goodbye in a body bag so uh it's the kind of thing it's a club we didn't want to join if there's parents out there listening we need to talk because you don't want to join this club
0: yeah so it's so heavy and do you know what do you know what it gives me chills and and the reason why it's such an important message is because, you know, when you guys are telling the story from the other side of the world, you know, I can completely relate to it. And I just think back to my own experience and you can only just put it down to fucking luck really that, you know, there's plenty of times where stuff like that happened to me or to friends or whatever. And, and yeah, it's, it's why, and I don't know if you guys agree, like it's like, Complete abstinence and recovery is important, but it's why it's why actually putting in interventions and helping people to stay alive first is more important you know <laughs> yep, it is. is that something like because we we're talking a little bit about this the other day like oh, and i don 't know if you guys agree, it'd be interesting to know like do you think that like the culture around how we help addiction and um, you know how we support people using drugs? in Australia versus the US is a little bit different. Like it sounds like in the US it's more focused on just like complete abstinence type stuff. Is that right?
3: I definitely think so. And I think um, there are several factors that go into that. First of all, you all have public health. You have Mm. a society that supports and that everyone is bought into Mm-hmm. your your public health. Sort in the of United everyone. States, because,
0: yeah, <laughs> the important a, people anyway.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, the I mean the point is that that in the states we're still dealing with this, you know, Affordable Care Act. The only thing that it really significantly changed for all the naysaying about it, one of the best things it changed was that you could not be excluded from healthcare for pre-existing conditions. And many of those pre-existing conditions, aside from cancer and diabetes and HIV, AIDS, that the insurance companies until 2014 or 16, that they could disqualify you from also were things like drug addiction and mental health. And so- um, you Australia has such a different aspect um, and view. And so
2: most private insurance in the States, which is the only way you can get any kind of help for uh, uh, recovery. Many of them do not cover.
3: Ours did not. And we spent $20,000 a year because we're both self-employed on our health insurance and our co-pays. And we did not have mental health coverage. So wow. now, um,
2: but, but I, did you want to touch too, though, on the, uh, the nature, the difference between the way the, the heroin reduction. thing is, is, uh,
3: no, not that, the not harm, that. Okay. So the harm reduction, yes. Australia is way ahead of the States in mm-hmm. the view of harm reduction. I would say, um, the fact that you have safe injecting sites until, July, the United States had no safe injecting sites. Rhode Island, the governor of Rhode Island, signed into bill for them to be able to have, legally have safe injecting sites in Rhode Island. Why? Where's Rhode Island? It's back near Massachusetts. New, New England, little, little tiny New England. Right, right. But, um, so you, Vancouver, Canada, Germany, Sweden have had Portugal s- safe injecting sites and um, harm reduction in general I think is viewed more positively here mm. um I don't know is that what you were asking me Jack or did I get yeah it? yeah
0: yeah no a hundred percent and like it is it, it is viewed a, a, like tenfold like and I think it's a good point because sometimes in Australia right we bang on about how the system's fucked and there is elements of it um but oh. I'm not comparing, there's good stuff about how the States does things as well. Um, but that, you know, like we do have to remind ourselves that we're actually doing a good job in a lot of areas, you know, uh-huh. and, and we kind of forget. Definitely. And it just, it just was something that stood out when you were telling um, JL's story about like how, you know, how something like that might've, might've impacted it differently. And, uh-huh. and I don't know if you guys think Big about gun. that stuff.
3: Well, and I don't know because I don't, I'm not totally familiar with AA and NA groups here. I know that things like smart recovery and some of the other recovery models are more open in the States. I, from what I understand, still 50, 60% of 12 step groups will not allow you in if you're on medicated assisted treatment and like
0: into the meeting, into yeah. the meeting.
3: You cannot. Be part of the meeting, <laughs> right. And so there's this pressure. And it's an all or nothing. And um, part of that relates heavily to the criminalization of drug addiction and drugs. And I have thought about this, as you can imagine, we do think about drug policies, because we can always then say, we can put ourselves in that circumstance. Our son was never arrested. Many of his friends were some of them had actually benefited them because they were put in jail for a long enough period of time that they got clean. And thankfully, they weren't where they were being dealt drugs, like in a lot of hardcore prison settings, right? Mm. A lot of times mm. people go into prison mm-hmm. and they end up just becoming worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I do think that decriminalizing all personal use drugs, like Portugal, it's not a perfect system, but it is has great statistics and their um, what I think was interesting and I'm going to look at this for a minute because I don't have it memorized but um, uh, Portugal has their oh and now I can't find it but um, the the decrease it's been a huge decrease in drug abuse by 15 to 24 year olds mm. and um it, I think that a lot, there's a lot of other statistics related to the Portugal project. 100%. But um, I do think that the criminalization also puts in people's mind because we've had it since the Nixon era on the war on drugs and then the Reagan era just say no. Just say no. Sounds so simple. And I think if you just say no and never try drugs, someone like me, it nice. is simple. You just are never going to go down that road. I had a terrible fear of what could happen. So I never touched uh, drugs, but that's not normal. Nor- <laughs> that's what I've been told. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah.
3: So I think the fear that people have related to uh, it's it's an image. And yeah. so if you're a loser, a down and out, a junkie, well, yeah. Send them to prison, you know. Get them off the streets. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a mentality, and I think that's where, um, I, I from what I understand with you, that is still a mentality. I hear okay. that here in Australia. Yeah. Too. oh I'm for sure.
1: Where sure you for want sure. to go
2: with this next, Jack? But I definitely want to touch on the contrast between what we were talking about uh, yesterday regarding yeah. how the and heroin, heroin thing happened here, because our story is not the the uh the poverty thing that characterized Mm. the middle section of america yeah go go
0: and and we'll go there in a sec because i i think that's highly fascinating i'm really keen to to hear your perspectives and experiences and story around that um and i and i'm sorry because we're jumping around a little bit um but so when you guys are going through all this can you just talk talk me through and and the listeners through like the different stages, like as family members, how are you guys dealing with a seeing, you know, JL at different stages kind of deteriorate and like, what's the emotional impact on you guys. And then also, you know, like what, what's it kind of like trying to navigate the health system and, and find these answers and stuff, you know, you, you guys kind of touched on it a little bit, how in the States, it's like a hundred thousand to go to an inpatient rehab or something. Um, so, so yeah, like, what, like, how did you feel and how did you deal with that when it was all happening?
2: Okay. Uh, I'm the feeling guy. I'll, I'll try not to talk forever here, but it's <laughs> good. You know, we parents love their kids. Yeah. Okay. And, Uh, You always want the best for your kids and you want to do the best things you can possibly do for them. And I've spent a good chunk of the times that, while Gerald was still alive, and then the last seven years since he's died, he died at 25 in 2014. Some people don't deal with regrets or don't think they're very productive. I I spend a lot of my time wishing I had done this different, wishing I had done that different. Because I think what you find when a a young person, or you know, not to be young, but when a person in your family is struggling with drug addiction, substance Mm. and alcohol abuse, uh, it's the whole family is doing it. Yeah. It's not just the person, it's the whole family. And from a, par- a parent perspective, your kid hits 18, 19, you gotta let them start making their own decisions, blah, blah. Uh, and the deal is even when they're younger, and when they're still under your jurisdiction, there, there weren't any right answers. You know, You're, you love them to death and that's overindulging. You back off and give the tough love And that, (laughs) and that doesn't work. You know, there just weren't any right answers. So, uh, you know, we can get into this later on too. I'm going to hush, but you know, one of our passions is let's, let's be keeping these kids who are struggling in addiction of any nature. And there's a lot of different facets to that. Let's, let's get into a prevention program here so that, nobody else has to join this club
1: yeah
3: well i think and before we do that uh more of the how did we navigate it there when when we found out the jail was using heroin like i said we were shocked because as we grew up in the 60s 70s heroin was the end of the line for drug users you only that you know and then you find that, you know, people like Ray Charles who did it their whole life. Well, just like our children's pot is not our generation's pot. It's genetically modified. It's way stronger. Same mm. with heroin. The heroin supply keeps getting stronger and stronger. And now it's we're mixed with the, fentanyl, mixed with fentanyl, carafentanil. Um, it is, it's lethal. And so, um, the other thing about 2005 was that nobody was talking. At his school, there was a drug bust three weeks before we before we found out. That's how his friend ended up going to rehab. A bunch of the kids, some girls were caught in the bathroom Jeez. Uh, smoking heroin. And so they never said a word. We didn't know. I only found out when I found out that my son was using heroin by having to call a mom. and. It's like all the moms in that clique knew. And her response to me was, and this was a lawyer, this, you know, lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs. It was like, we never thought JL would have used it. It's like, but he comes around with your kids all the time. So it very <laughs> shame, shame and stigma based. And so for him, we didn't let people know. Uh, there were two reasons why we, we had close friends and family knew. Mm-hmm. Um But we also felt that for him, it was his story at that time. And I think there's a fine line between telling your kid's story to the whole world Mm -hmm. um, when it's their story until he, and he was not ready to own that publicly. Mm -hmm. So the shame and stigma that is uh, surrounded and especially, so that's 15 years ago was Amazing. I mean, we couldn't even find, I called his pediatrician and said, uh, our son's using heroin. What do we do? And he just like went, what, what, you know, so Um, he calls the university and goes on. So I think that the, um, it does tend to isolate families. hmm. I do think thankfully now it's less than it was 15 years ago. Hmm. Um, Because more people are talking out, because Mm -hmm. your podcast and other people's podcasts, I think, um, and the more that we can destigmatize drug use and drug abuse and alcohol abuse, any Mm -hmm. kind of addiction, the more people will feel free to talk about it and to take it out of the shadows and bring it into the light. And that's part of why also we're we're real supporters of the rethink addiction campaign. Yep. Because that's the whole point is to get rid of the stigma.
0: So it sounds like um it sounds like the the one of the big things for you guys was the stigma, right? And was the approach. And you really feel like that was one of the things that probably held some positive progress back. Um what oh, Again, I I know I hate going there, but but John, you you sort of mentioned it as well. Like, what what do you guys wish was different at that time? W- would it have been a forum to talk about it? Would it have been, you know, obviously the system to kind of be different? But yeah, like, what are the kind of some of the things that you wish you had done different? Um, that you wish you could have had your time again not that it would have changed the who knows if it would have changed the outcome but just so that now probably knowing what you know now after doing all this work on it and with it yeah what are some of those things cuz when families talk to us that's the biggest question that they always ask like what do I actually do here
2: well you know you're you're you just finish up on the stigma one of the characteristic uh aspects of our affluent uh, foothills neighborhood in Tucson yeah is rich people don't like to talk about their kid being a heroin addict <laughs> you know it's not a real you know it's not a cocktail hour kind of a thing just, so the school were, did a big, yes, a big bust on
3: oh i heard i just said that you here.
2: said okay so you heard about that whole story right yeah and we didn't even hear about it so one of the things that would have been helpful is if the the system whether it's governmental or school or, or whatever, if if the system had not been so hung up about uh, drug use, substance mm. use.
3: public knowledge, public information, and yeah, um, I think that's, so, that's a huge thing. But where were you going? What from? I
2: mentioned, too, is I'm, I'm a pharmacist, okay? Yeah, I studied pharmacology, like eight hours worth of it in uh, pharmacy school. Yeah. I studied pharmacology in graduate school. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that, you know, opium is the dried exudate of the, you know, the the poppy capsule and all. I mean, I could probably have have extracted that stuff as a as a college student. Mm.
1: Uh,
2: And so for me, the regret from an educational perspective is that we just assumed that this couldn't be that bad, Mm. you know, JL is going to get through this. Mm. But you know what? This is heroin. I don't know if you'd shared this already or not, but his his uh psychiatrist MD PhD uh doc, the six months before uh he died, said a heroin is the cancer of addictions. It's like um, you can't <laughs> yeah, it just when it gets a hold of you, it's a lifetime project. It's not just something you walk away from. Mm. And so I kick myself because I should have known that. Okay, I don't care whether he's just smoking it or not; it's it's freaking heroin. So that you know, and, and I mean, it this goes on and on and on. Uh, so education for ourselves—we wish we'd listened to the professionals. Oh, that's pretty novel, you know. <laughs> The uh, the guy we would go into for the outpatient program, he was really good and strong. He said, "Did should probably be in our inpatient program?" Oh no no we're it's cool we can you know, I I think he's going to be okay. So we had you know we were too smart for our own goods mm-hmm. because we assumed that when J L told us he could deal with this and handle it that that he could, mm-hmm. and so you know we just.
1: I don't know. Uh,
3: I think the, one of, a couple of the things that are, I think about like for us, um, you know, our hearts are in Australia now. This is where our daughter and her husband and our grandchildren are. And Mm -hmm. uh, this is where we hope they'll let us in someday. And, (laughs) um, (laughs) And what I see is that our concerns are for an approaching opioid epidemic in Australia, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but what I, what I see, Sam Quinones, a great investigative journalist in the States, wrote Dreamland that was released in 2015, one of the first books on the opioid epidemic. And his thesis was, um, he I believe, correctly documented the fact that the lack of community and the increasing affluence in american society created the perfect void for addiction to go right into Mm -hmm. you know it's if you've got a rock wall stuff's going to just bounce off but there was this was a void and what i see in australia is similar um societal things starting to shift i mean a dozen years ago when we first started coming we'd go back to the states and we'd say oh we love australia it's kind of like america was in the 50s and 60s like it's slower life and people have bigger families and they yeah, not-
2: but melbourne is like paris meets seattle or something it was this really cool well, yeah it
3: wasn't that it was backwards at all uh, because tucson was backwards compared to <laughs> melbourne and sydney but it was culturally the sense of family and yeah. community Mm. felt a lot stronger and I still believe that but I see chinks in that armor people you've got a lot of households where you have both people working why are you both people working because the houses are so expensive and if you want a nice house and then you move house more often you don't know your neighbors you don't have that sense of community and without that there is a um, I don't know I just think that it's it's a direction that concerns us.
0: People are disconnected. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
3: You know, there's not like um, there's not like the aunt and uncle down the road. If they, you know, if you're in a Mexican community in the United States or even in a black community, you know, if they see somebody's kid down the street, you know, doesn't matter whose it is, they'll go over and yank their ear if they're doing something wrong or smack them upside the head. Well, you know, <laughs> in our upper middle class white societies, you don't do that. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah.
3: yeah. And you're not that attached. So that's one element that I think is a um a, a real like keep your eyes on that, watch out for that. Um, the other thing is that I think that where Australia might be lulled to sleep, and you and I talked about this. The fact that you have good policy and stuff in Australia for public health, but in a sense that can kind of create an ivory palace between the what the policy says and what's actually happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. And opioids and meth, I know mostly you guys have had a meth issue and you explained to me that in the 1990s, the heroin um, epidemic here that killed so many people has caused people really be like alert and they they think, well, if you use heroin, I would never do that because first of all, they think IV, and then they think junkie down on Skid Row. Mm-hmm. But what, how opioids slipped into middle class and upper middle class America, 15 years ago, was through prescription drugs, through benzos, oxys, codeine over the counter in the which is now not no longer over the counter in Australia, and. Um, this 25% of people who try opioids will become addicted to them. It's the highest addiction rate of any drug. And so you, you, it's something that I feel like people have to realize that that, and I think Australia is good in the fact that your doctors have already watched what America did by over prescribing opioids. And Mm. so there's a, there's a consciousness to be careful about that. Mm. But if you um if you if you just thinking that i will or my kids will never do heroin because mm-hmm. they picture a junkie with a strap around his arm sitting in a gutter with a needle that's a false image of what an opioid epidemic in the united states has what's happened and what it's like
0: mm-hmm. yeah because even like um and I'm sure that that is part of it as well, but even like the, the stuff that comes out about the opioid epidemic that we see here in Australia, um, and that's why it's so interesting talking to people like yourselves to kind of give the real perspective. You know, we we see like the Netflix series, I think where it's based in, um, and I could be wrong, but I think the opioid one is largely based around like flint michigan which mm. which i understand to be yeah very like low socio-economic um town and for a number of different reasons in america and you know it shows like that sort of real skid row perspective and you know they they do touch on like how it's prescription pills and all that sort of stuff but it's still kind of i think portrays this image of that it's just ravaging you know the country putting everyone on the street and all that sort of stuff and and from what you guys are saying that's that's not really the case there's lots of people that are more affluent that have like externally kind of holding their lives together but they there's this massive problem with opioids is that is that kind of right
3: absolutely they're holding their lives together and just barely and so eventually eventually their lives by will fall apart and they're falling apart sooner and quicker and earlier and back to the, the the view of the opioid epidemic in the states. West Virginia, one of our most
0: yeah, that's where it is.
3: The yeah. most economically depressed state in the country, which is where they then they it was all coal mining, coal mining and stuff and had the highest addiction rate, and that was where the pill mills, the oxy reps, and those people. They there was actually American Pain um, by uh, John Temple tells about this. There were there were. Um, what are those called those luxury coaches going up and down between the populations <laughs> and Florida mm-hmm. and they go and RVs and they go in our caravans, they go yeah. and they park their caravan and sit outside the clinic and wait to get the massive number of pills that they could get from these uh, horrible doctors and then head back up and to the Hills. So that's a different story. And I think the, um, I think the the thing is, is that if people realize that uh, opioids, if you take an opioid today, then tomorrow, and and it gives gives you a great feeling or heroin, whatever amount, tomorrow you have to take double that to get that same feeling. So Mm -hmm. it keeps upping the ante and just to not be dope sick. Mm -hmm. And it escalates rapidly especially with the purity of heroin that's coming out and with it being mixed with fentanyl mm-hmm. you um so it is it is the upper class even though i will say that cocaine is a really big thing with the business set in the states mm-hmm. well, same here <laughs> Not that, yeah, but it's it's more the white collar. And from what I, the statistics I heard were that um one million Australians use cocaine weekly, right? Regularly now, right?
0: Yeah, right. I, I I haven't seen that one, but it's it's interesting. From some of the early data that's come out, it's kind of showing that throughout the pandemic that cocaine is on on the rise in Australia for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah.
2: yeah, hey, let me jump in on this uh, America thing. And because I'm fascinated also by the comparisons and the contrasts between the two countries. And I don't know if this would be characteristic for Australia or not, but we really have two Americans. I make a joke about, gosh, I wish the East Coast and the West Coast could just secede from the rest of the country. okay? Mm. Because you've got very liberal, very progressive mindsets uh, in action, mostly mostly, mostly, uh, college-educated, mostly... um you know not all but 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 characteristically they're where stuff happens mm-hmm. then you got the central part of the country that because of the rust belt and the automobile industry and all the things that went south and all the rich people in america sending you know their money to uh and, and were are buying products made in you know other parts of the world under slave labor conditions sometimes, so that's the, that's the characteristic and that because there are two Americans, there were actually two different opiate epidemics as well there mm-hmm. were there were the down and out poor poverty ones and then there was this whole you know JL was a kid he, he was uh, he you, you, you do stupid things when you're a teenager you yeah. experiment you got the peer pressure of all your friends saying, "Hey man, you he should try this." so that's a whole different dynamic uh than the than the pill mill poverty uh yeah. deal that right. was now do you think there's any is there a comparison to the city versus the rural thing here yeah well that's or? what i
0: was gonna that's what i was gonna say right and it's probably uh, it's not talked about a lot actually um in australia and, and probably needs to be talked about more um in a lot of different facets, not just when it comes to alcohol and drugs, but when it comes to a lot of, a lot of different stuff, but, and this is just my perspective for everyone listening. There'd probably be people that disagree with me. Um, but over the last couple of years I've been, and it's probably in a different way. So probably not so much like socio economically, um, uh, but more just like from probably like a, a cultural perspective as well. and And just like a bit of a, um uh, understanding of again like that ivory tower thing like how different things work in in different parts of australia you know so there's kind of like the big city and the the rural right um and and then there's also you know the the aboriginal and torres strait islander population where there's a complete you know it's completely different again you know so so it's um it's interesting but yeah I, I I and again this is just my perspective but I think um yeah I've been lucky enough to meet some people that are community leaders in regional areas um and in the country that are phenomenal I can't say that word geez phenomenal like I'm not yeah. even going to try everybody's yeah, laughing at yeah. me you know what I mean right yeah, they're ama- amazing amazing leaders and I think there is you know, when it comes to policy decisions and stuff, there there kind of is this city-centric way of thinking about things. You know, um, there's this really interesting lady that has been really big in um, on social media and stuff. Um, it's called Sober in the Country, yeah. and and that's around alcohol. Her name's Shana One. We've had her on the podcast. Yeah. She's awesome, and she really kind of talks about that a lot. You know, um, and and yeah, I guess it's it's just. It's not that it's like necessarily divided, or maybe it is, but it's just different. And I think there's a lack of understanding about how the different how different policies need to be implemented differently in these different places um, to kind of pick that up culturally. So yeah, there 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 100% is lots of different dynamics yeah. sort of at play. Um, and I think I think you're right. Like I think probably socioeconomically as well. Um, Again, culturally and politically um, and and just you know even financially, just the way that the systems work in Australia and America are slightly different, um, but there is like a growing divide between the rich and the poor here as well, and I think that that like and the gap is getting bigger like you can't i don't think you can kind of deny that you know um, and and that definitely adds an element of um access to, to health services and ed- education, I think is the main thing, or not even education, but just like you guys said, just information distribution and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it, it's very interesting. So uh, I wanted to ask you just just quickly, like um w- like when you come here to to Australia and you look at The differences and and things like that like do you see australia as like even even though you guys kind of sound like you're on board with like the drug policies and stuff is it like too progressive or not like you know because i understand that it's sort of pretty different but do you see like those drug policies as really progressive or would that freak a lot of american people out like some of the stuff that we do here with the injecting rooms and stuff
2: just a little word. Uh, the fact our, our friends in the States get so tired of hearing us talk about how fantastic <laughs> that this is a social democracy. Oh, yeah. That's not a particularly bad thing. That's actually pretty cool because that means you want to take care of each other.
1: Society. And the,
2: as, for as a, as a society, as a nation, you've been used to having all of that Go down for years and years and years. So the implementation of programs in in drug addiction and recovery are going to be much much easier for Australia, I think, than America. America is light years away from a universal health care, I don't think it'll ever happen. That's why we're coming to Australia. <laughs> yeah, you know. So uh, the, and and correspondingly, then they're I think way behind in terms of. Uh, progressive approaches to rethinking addiction
3: well i also i i think uh, i wanted to i I agree with everything john said so i can't really add anything to that i do think um but i do think that and rethink addiction the reason they want to do the campaign in canberra and get the attention of the politicians and the media is that there is a disconnect because Mm. you take overall general good care of your population Mm. with preventative medicine and and easy access pretty much the fact that it could take two months for somebody to get into a public detox Mm. when they are uh, a heroin addict or a meth addict and they need help what right then two months they could be dead I mean Mm. they easily would be dead Um, that that's shameful and that has to change but I do think one of the things that i wanted to say was about opioids is that the lulling to sleep part of it is what if opioids just kind of become viewed as innocuous as they did in the states and like i said i do believe that you have a prevention against that because you've watched it in the states but Mm. if opioids benzos other drugs become uh, innocuous and And the hard party drugs like um, uh, uh, GHB and meth, and GHB, which is highly addictive, um, are viewed as, well, you know, kids are going to do party stuff, right? What you don't realize is that is this progression that happens. And, and for people to think that their kids can play around with those drugs, or even as young adults, and and that at least 25% of them are going to end up being hooked for life until they go through a recovery, if they make it that far, is foolish. Mm -hmm. That there's only one path that goes forward with opiates. And if you think, well, I go from party drugs, well, I might try smoking this. You know, eventually our son swore he would never put a needle in his arm.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: But when you need more buzz and more kick for your buck, you'll put that needle in your arm and then mm. it'll be in your neck and then it'll be in the veins in your legs. Mm. So I think that people need to be forewarned that um, drugs in general are not as innocuous. And then another thing is that the the statistics as of a few years ago from out of Harvard were that it takes four to five recovery attempts and eight years to gain one year of sobriety from opioids that's a long haul so let's go on to prevention because i've got some (laughs) ideas if you want to hear
0: awesome yeah i definitely do so and and just to cap that off because you're right like um it it is really interesting to hear the difference between australia and the us and and you know we're probably doing well in australia in some of in 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 some of the aspects that we do but i don't i don't want anyone listening to this cuz i'm definitely not I'm definitely not saying we're doing an outstanding job like we had i don't know if you guys heard that one but this week we had um uh professor alison ritter on on the show and and she does a lot of um yeah public health modeling in that alcohol and drug space and all that stuff. Um, And and she sent me some stuff back that says that, you know, the total health budget um, all over for all types of health in Australia is $81.8 billion per annum. Um, And the AOD investment within that um, or treatment investment is $1 billion. Um, So prevention and stuff wouldn't be that much more. So that only adds to 1% of the total healthcare budget Whereas compared to mental health, which has just had a massive kick um, just in the last few years due to some good advocacy and stuff like that is 10.6 billion, which is 13%. So the, the harm, the flow on effects, downstream effects, they call it in, in public health service in, in the public health sector and, and how it impacts emergency wards, primary health care, all other healthcare settings is massive and the fact that we only spent one percent of the health budget on it is fucking insane (laughs) (laughs) you know so Uh, (laughs)
1: um
0: so so uh, yeah i'm interested to hear because i think it's great you know like um and and i'm i want to ask you about that as well is that you know how is doing all this work helped you kind of with your grief process and and Mm -hmm. you know transforming through all that and and we'll get to that soon but i just think it's amazing and and we need more of this and we need more of the conversation and and again the reason for this show is is you know like we need some innovation in the space and it's going to come from people unfortunately that have been negatively impacted and and professionals and stuff like that so um yeah like I, I imagine some of these ideas around prevention come purely from what you think would have helped you guys with, with JL, you know? Um, so yeah, shoot, tell us some of your ideas. I'm interested all right. to know.
3: Well, I, um I, there are many risk factors that go into addiction. I don't, I don't buy into that all addiction or the majority of addiction is based in childhood trauma because yeah. our, child's generation in the United States is, as we said, a different dynamic. JL had some traumas in his life, like we all had, but they were never, it wasn't family abuse or violence or drinking or poverty. We didn't have any of those. What we had was peer pressure and uh, some of these other things, but one of the things was, if you do have genetics in your family. And, and mm. Australia has a high percentage of people from Northern Europe, which is has a very high alcohol rate. Um, alcoholism. Alcoholism and alcohol abuse. And so that is a risk factor for any other addiction. And um, I think you have to know that. <clears throat> and I think you have to be careful with it. Um, early exposure has proven to greatly increase Uh, addiction risk early the earlier you're exposed to drugs your brain isn't fully developed till somewhere between 21 and 25 and so if those chemicals start changing your brain in your brain early on 11 14 whatever you're just going to have a lot harder of a time to to reverse that they can be reversed they can change our brains are very malleable but it's just harder work Um, the I think the prevention through and I have down on my notes here, parents, family, children, politicians, it's start young and know what it is that's in your community.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, if meth is the big thing, you know, keep your ear to the ground. Um, if if you see that opioids are starting to rise, whatever, just be informed. Um and the vaccine for addiction is community. Johan Hari <laughs> said in Chasing the Scream, you know, the, uh, his famous quote, which now I, I'm blanking on. But anyway, basically, <laughs> the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Yep.
2: And, and And in that, know your kids' friends because they're going to have a lot of interaction with their friends eight hours a day or more And if you, we were not connected to to the families of the kids that JL was hanging out with. That was a big, huge mistake. That was
3: a big mistake. Um, The other thing I like to say to people is on the prevention is know about activities, diet, behavior, sleep. Know the things that boost the positive brain chemicals. Mm -hmm. Like
2: you're you're doing with your programs.
3: And, but there are activities, there are things, and I have to say, we, did not focus on this, even though John and I were very community service kind of oriented, we didn't include our kids in that uh, for several different reasons, but it was more, what we received from that was this great sense of joy. When you serve somebody else that can't pay you back, that joy of giving is gives you all those uh, neurochemicals that you need, all the dopamine, and endorphins. And I think instead of children being bored and looking for the next game to play and um, basically, you know, going to get themselves into trouble (laughs) and just, you know, have, have, be part of a community where you're also serving, not self-serving, but where we're giving because you cannot, you cannot overestimate the power of giving and what it does to your brain chemicals so I put that out there as my number one thing good stuff then Mm -hmm. the other thing is peer pressure and I want to say this because um uh Gabor Mate who wrote about um uh in the realm of hungry ghosts and his whole work in Vancouver BC and starting the safe injecting room and trauma like I said I don't agree that's his culture that his people are in But he wrote a book also in the early 2000s with a child psychiatrist called Hold On to Your Kids. And he has made some really good points. And I'm going to read it just because I don't remember well. But um, the, the quotable quote is, increasingly, the modern teenager relies more on peer pressure than family relationships and values peer pressure, and group dynamics is known to be one of the highest risk for adolescent drug and alcohol experimentation and use. And that last line comes from um, Nora Volkow in the United States in the um, SAMHSA. So he, in the book, it looks, I have not read it all. I've just read excerpts. He talks about how children at one, were adult oriented in the past. And that, all children need that attachment and that attachment should be to their parents and siblings. If they don't receive it at home, they will get it from peer pressure. And um, so they, they debunk the myths that children need socialization first. What they say is that social, socialization should place third in a child's development after that primary connecting and maturing. And that, as we know, is, um, I think the question for parents and society then is how can we guide our teens away from being overly influenced by peer pressure. And that again, I think relates to what you do in your family, how you are involved in the community, um, you know, those kind of things. And I, I could pontificate for a long time on that, but
0: Oh, I love it. and And to me, it sounds like which I'm really big, big on as well, and I couldn't agree with you more, um, is like in terms of prevent prevention, you know what it sounds like you guys are talking about specifically is is capacity building families, um, knowledge and skills and strategies that they have to a, yeah, make a more connected kind of family unit um and um connected make everybody within that family unit more connected to themselves and 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 the world. Um, but also, you know, like teaching families the different trigger points and and different, I guess, pitfalls and and slipping points that you know might happen for kids along the way, um, which is really interesting and and kind of in a similar way that they've done just recently in australia in the suicide prevention space they they put a very big emphasis on upskilling and educating families on how to look for the signs and symptoms of suicide and and what happens and it's made a pretty significant impact in in reducing you know suicides for people and and having some earlier intervention and i as i said you know earlier on when we were chatting i i just i couldn't agree with you more i think it's such a big space because the reality is is that professional services cannot just cannot be with you know kids or people 24 7 and it it comes down to the community and and the families that are around them to to help support yeah
2: you know um you i I think some of the things that I didn't remember when you were asking about regrets, I think tie into this whole concept of prevention as well. And and a couple of thoughts just to toss them in and see how they fit. You know, I would said we all love our kids, or when you have kids, you love them and and you want the best for them. But the bottom line is, we all love imperfectly. And Hmm. that's really kind of a sad (laughs)
1: <laughs> Truth.
2: It just is the reality. We just don't do it exactly the way we would want to do it. So, um, if we had paid more attention, uh, I my my daughter is uh, old a little bit older than J.L. and uh, her kids. She is so tuned in to what makes those kids tick, and I look at that and I'm just in awe because when John Life was a little kid. You know, I was the dad, he was the kid. You know, I, I didn't i didn't remember how much I had, uh, how much fear I had as a little five-year-old about this or that or the other thing. And I ignored that stuff. I was completely insensitive to that in, in my son. Mm-hmm. And I really deeply regret that. And I think from a prevention perspective, you know, moms and dads just stay tuned to what is going on with your kid, because it's crucial, it's critical, it's imperative that you know. Hmm. And uh, again, you're going to make mistakes. It won't won't be 100% perfect, but if you're oriented toward that, and then have the conversations. It's tough to have conversations with 14-year-olds. Yeah. But I, one of my regrets is I just didn't take the time to, to you know, those teachable moments where you can draw aside and, and find out how they're feeling, find out why they're afraid of this or what their concerns are. You know, uh, one of the, my, my age guys asked John Life on a camping trip that he was on with them with one of his other young friends, Why do you do this, Jay? Why are you do, using heroin? And he goes, It takes away all of the pain.
1: Mm.
2: So here's my son, you know, uh, has everything. He's handsome. He can, you can talk your shorts off. He's, you know, he's bright. He's not just bright. He's like too bright Uh, and he's got pain. And I'm going, holy cow, what's that about? So I guess that's just it. I'll stop
3: well along that line the other thing about is remembering that teenagers have so much going on and in that the the 9 to 14 year old age is considered the second window of opportunity in parenting and it's where your kids brains are growing at a faster rate than they normally do so 0 to 3 is the first window and 9 to 14 around there is the other second window and i think taking the time to um, know and realize these changes that there are things about the adolescent brain physically that make it prone to risk. And some of that is very helpful and and it's what um, it's what helps them you know move ahead and stuff. but mm-hmm. it's I think our job as parents is to gear them towards uh, what kind of risk is that how can we take them, into risks that aren't going to cause them, you know, harm harm, (laughs) or them or other people. How can you, and some of those risks are, many of those risks for teenagers that relate to peer pressure are social risks. You know, Mm. being the person who is standing outside of the group, you know, and, and being the out person and the dread of many of JL's friends and a couple of the stories in Opiate Nation, Uh, in the back talk about why some of his friends used drugs or alcohol, and it was to fit in. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: those those age brackets where you're awkward about yourself, and you, if you don't fit in, it's like death to self, you've Mm -hmm. got to have a tribe, you know, so I just I want to throw that out. (laughs)
0: 100%. Now it's, it's, um, look, I, I got to say, I, I hope you guys don't blame yourself for the outcome, but it, it is very much appreciated to have you guys candidly kind of talk about, you know, some of the learnings, I guess you could call them out of, you know, what is a, what is a terrible um, experience and, and terrible thing that's happened in your life. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you guys, and and there there is the chapter in the book, but how do you get through something like this? You know, I just, I think like, I just can't begin to imagine like, and, and yeah, ha- how have you done it and, and how do you have the courage to kind of stand up and, and talk about it and, and put out a book and, you know, it's just, it's amazing
3: that the day that our son died and after we zipped him up in that body bag, they zipped him up and we, Stood out in the hot August sun in Arizona, and our we had friends with us um, that were holding us up, physically holding us up, because it was such a horrible thing. As a matter of fact, the name for the book was originally going to be saying goodbye through a body bag instead of opiate nation, and our friends just went, oh my gosh, that's too macabre, you cannot use that. Mm-hmm. But that was the image I just have, I well, that's permanently cemented in my mind, this black, thick body bag with a big brass zipper and my son's face was under there and his hand and all we could do was like feel and imagine and so you know as our friends prayed for us at that day when we stood there um our faith our personal faith is really important and i know people have all different you know spiritual beliefs but i think that a spiritual connection and our hope of for us, of seeing him and being reunited someday is a big one. Mm -hmm. But the other thing we did was from when we got home, our friends drove us home. We couldn't even drive. We were just a mess. And um, we got home and we immediately put up on his Facebook page and our Facebook page, John Life died this morning of a heroin overdose, accidental heroin overdose. We did not want to cover it up because Mm -hmm. if you cover it up, If you feel shame, it says he deserved to have shame. Yeah. And that was the last thing we wanted him to do. He did not want to die. He did not want to be addicted. And he did not deserve to be shamed. The other thing we did was starting that very day, I pulled out a blank journal that someone had given me and we started writing and we wrote every day for a year, just how we felt. Every raw feeling, every bad feeling, every angry feeling every angry at the drug dealers, at his friend, at God, at society, at ourselves. And we just wrote. And at the end of a year is what, when a friend of mine who um, was a writer said, you've got to turn that into a book because it's both of your voices. A lot of times in an addiction story, you hear one parent or the other. And a lot of times when a child dies of overdose or a tragic death, the marriage disintegrates Mm -hmm. and for us that wasn't going to happen we weren't I wasn't pointing at John and John pointing at you we were pointing at ourselves Mm -hmm. and that was a therapy in itself writing is a Mm -hmm. therapy Mm -hmm. and then being able to share and we just knew even though nobody we didn't know anyone whose child had died of an overdose because not that they didn't happen Friends of his at his high school had died. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked about it. They didn't have public memorials, nothing. And we just, we couldn't do that.
2: Unknown causes. Well, you know, Jude and I processed that whole first year much differently. We both contributed to the, to the journal, which is essentially a bunch of letters to John Life. Just were, the, yeah. For me, I couldn't conceive uh, the fact that time was continuing to progress for all the rest of us when it had stopped for my son. I just, I couldn't, couldn't get my head around that. It was, it was completely nuts. In addition to journaling, which was very important, very helpful, I found it, I, I would sit at my laptop and I'd look at all his pictures and I'd listen to his music and I'd listen to the CD of, uh, the bone thugs and harmony tune that he gave me crossroads and you know so i'm just going i'm just immersed in all of this but i took every opportunity i had to talk i just wanted to talk i wanted to talk about my son and um i mean not just with his friends or our friends or anything of that nature. Oh, no.
3: Every people on the street got
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm at the car wash, you know, and the young yeah. lady is taking my change, and I'm going, I'm looking in her eyes and going, you're okay, aren't you? You're not, you're not doing, you know, I mean, I just, that was my dialogue. And, uh, and even to this day, we cannot have a conversation when, you know, we meet a bunch of great new people up here and uh, where we are now. And we're, we're in Melbourne. We've met a bunch of great people and inevitably, you talk about your kids. Well, our, we have one surviving child, and our son died, and you know, I you, got my little bands and all that stuff. And boom, uh, everybody we talk to has got an addiction story. They all have a story. So, the other thing that really helped me make it and still helps me make it is we were connected to a couple of John Life's friends closely, but after he died, these kids came out of the woodwork. He was hanging with 40 or 50 really great kids, a lot of them with big issues and, tr- and struggles and, and trials, but every, well, not every one of them, bunches and bunches of them would voluntarily call us or text us or FaceTime us and go through this narration of what an awesome guy he was and what an incredibly Positive influence he had on their lives, and a lot of them, you know, had issues as well of regret because they didn't, you know, he reached out to some of them during those last couple of weeks, and they were busy and didn't get back to him. So, you know, they had there was this great dynamic of talking through his life, their lives, and that's that's what helped me.
3: And and I always oh, tell oh, oh,
2: people. Hold on, oh. yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, Go ahead. The other thing is. If I didn't have the hope that I am actually going to see him again, and listen, he was not like an on fire Christian kind of a kid. You know, he was, <laughs> he was, he was walking his life. But uh, I do think he had a spiritual awakening, like I said, about six months before, kind of a yeah. rebirth of his, of, his, of his concepts and faith. If I didn't have the hope that I would see him again. It'd be hard. I okay, no, no point in
3: going, oh. no I, point. I, I do say, and I believe so strongly, John's ability to be very vulnerable when we talk about JL and our our decision to be open. When you're open, you invite other people, and that's what happens. You let other people talk when nobody else in the room is talking about it. All of his friends had never had any other families that they of their other friends who had died that had done public memorials. We had hundreds of people at his memorial, lasted two hours or two and a half hours. Then we had a big dinner that friends put on afterwards. It opened it up for those people and those friends to be able to talk. And you've gotta be able to talk. If you hold that bottle, that stuff up, it just, I don't know what happens. I think it makes you sick, you know?
2: i guess one other thing jude has studied all this stuff and wrote about it in the book uh, there's five stages of grief and then there's another one after that Uh, there's no good way to grieve man uh, there's your way to but grieve. you gotta
3: do it that's there's, it
2: there's your way right so nobody can tell you how you need to do your grieve grieving process it's it's uh Unique to each individual that has suffered loss, and you suffer all kinds of losses aside from the death of loved ones. Uh, we suffered the grief of not having our son uh, as a sober, thriving young adult. That was a grieving process in and of itself. So
3: that's the the grieving the living for people who have loved ones in active addiction. There's a grief that you have to. I wrote about it in the book that you have to deal with in um, the old person, the one you knew and loved and related to is gone and you have to accept them where they're at. And I think I think, um, had we been able to have more open conversations with our son while he was addicted instead of him always feeling like we were going, why don't you just stop? Because we didn't understand, you know, so. Yeah, That that
2: was the other thing was the coming alongside. That's another part of the convention. So So, we could talk forever here, man. (laughs) It's,
0: it's, it's, it, um, I, I must admit like, fuck, it just, it kicks me in the gonads a little bit and, and tugs at me because it's just like, as I said before, I think it's just so kind of, for me personally it's just so relatable and you know like without getting into it i could just think about so many times where it was so close and lucky for the ambos and all that stuff and yeah. you, when you when you kind of the, the person uh, it's why i kind of like slash don't like talking to families but when you're the person going through it you just kind of it's the human experience right you just kind of pop your head into life and forget about all these things that kind of happen and how you feel and all the stuff that's going on. And then when you hear like you guys talk about it and mirror it back, you're just like, Holy fuck. Like that is the real actual exact nature of it all and, and how it impacts so many things. So eh, what would your, what would you guys say? Like, I know it's a really corny thing to ask to kind of finish up, but what would you guys say as, you know, like a message that, just to people, whether it's you know users, family members, anybody experiencing the um, you know the, the impacts of alcohol and drugs.
1: I'll make it quick. Uh, don't give up. Don't don't stop loving them, and don't give up.
3: Yeah, I I don't know that I can add anything else to that as as parents. um, I just think that it's worth the fight. And every effort we can make, because a person cannot recover if they die of an overdose. Mm -hmm. And recovery is a long, tedious process that we need to support people and the way look for ways to engage people so that they'll be interested in recovery. Mm. And then our job, what we feel, is to work on the prevention end by telling our story is a a cautionary tale.
0: Yeah. And um, I, I would actually like to say for everybody listening, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people struggling all day, every day. And I think the overwhelming message for me is that, you know no matter what is going on, if you're breathing, it's a pretty good day, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So
2: it, it beats the alternative.
0: That's right. That's right. So where can people grab your book? Um, Opioid Nation. We're, all all good websites. Yeah. Get it. I, it's been in the background there. Yes. We, we can it right there. hold it up to the camera. All right.
3: Yeah. So yeah. Opioid Nation, you know, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble online book distributors. If your local um, ratings or one of those booksellers, they'll order it, it's all, it's available for all of them to order. Um, the hardback's really expensive, especially in Australia, but mm. a year ago, we, on the anniversary of International Overdose Awareness Day, we brought out a paperback and an ebook, uh-huh. which I, we've lowered the price as low as the printer will let us do it, which is at cost, because they won't let you sell it for less than cost. But anyway, we'll
2: <laughs> we have to pay to sell it.
3: Yeah, they won't let us do that. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, through September 1st, it's on sale now on as paperback and ebook. So you can get it. And um, yeah, and our website is www.opiatenation.com. Um, and there's a contact thing there. So you can write us if you want to have any questions or want to email us. Um, I, we take the time to respond to people and, you know, we're not professionals in anything except for our own experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, like mostly what we tell people is we know what not to do. And we're starting to figure out a few things that people can do. So,
2: yeah. And so this was a labor of love as well. I mean, this wasn't written to, you know, sell thousands of copies, of course, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, our prayer, of course, is that our story, JL's story, the, the narration and, the, and the, the incredible stuff that Jude put into the book, if it saves one person, and we know that it already has, it's been worth the whole schmear. And so that's, that's our hope. That's our desire, is that it, uh, we're part of the solution instead of part of the problem
0: amazing guys no thank you so much for coming on um and yeah just being open and and sharing that tough experience and that tough story um and yeah we look forward to seeing you guys at the rethink addiction campaign when it when it actually happens happens. when we get out of lockdown
1: exactly
0: (laughs) all right awesome guys have a great day thank you you. there you go everybody another show down. Look, hope you enjoyed that well, maybe not enjoyed it. Hope it was impactful and thought provoking. Probably hope a lot of our shows are like that, actually, like you know enjoyable in some way, but not in the literal sense it's it 's more um, where we hope that they 're impactful and get conversation going and and you know get people 's perspectives shifted and changing and and all that sort of stuff. So I hope it did that for you. Um, if you're interested to find out more about their story, because there's so much more we could have talked about, grab their book, Opioid Nation. Again, it's about um, the the life and memory of their son, um, John Life um, or JL. And um, yeah, look, we uh, hope everyone's holding in there and, and going well in the lockdown after that show or for any other reason. If you need to reach out, please send us an email or get in contact. Um, or if you want to kind of go and do something further, you know, booking a call with us. Um, and, yeah, we, we just hope that the show is beneficial. Um, again, we hope that you're staying safe and well in lockdowns. Um, if you're in Australia, we hope that you're well if you're somewhere else in the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, until we're vibing in your ears again next week, thanks, everybody. Peace.